Hey, it's Jordan. We'll fire up the Chill Factory in about 20 seconds. I just launched the Chill Factory newsletter on LinkedIn. Each issue is inspired by conversations I've had here on the Chill Factory podcast and includes extras to help you, your clients, students, and anyone else you support. So subscribe to the Chill Factory newsletter on LinkedIn and see you there. The way treatment looks today may look very different 10 years from now. Certainly looks different than it did 10 years ago. I think we're gonna help lots and lots of people and we're gonna help give people just better quality of life. And that that's really the, the name of the game. Hey, welcome and welcome back to The Chill Factory, where we make work, school, relationships, and life less stressful with expert interviews, rapid relaxers, and excellent resources. I'm Jordan Friedman. So far in our nearly 60 episodes of The Chill Factory, we've sent a whole bunch of stress reducers down the conveyor belt. We've done shows on designing calming spaces, digital relax hacks, talking with your kids about mental health, public speaking without freaking, imposter syndrome, and reducing flying anxiety. We've covered the power of mediation. The previous episode showcased meditation, and I think the sex episodes mentioned masturbation. But until now, we haven't talked about medication, namely prescription drugs that reduce stress, anxiety, and depression. These powerful chemicals help millions worldwide to focus, feel better, sleep easier, get happier, and move forward. Maybe you're one of them. At the same time, there are many people who could benefit from pharmaceuticals, but they don't or won't because they're unsure about them, without information, scared to take them, embarrassed about being on them, or see needing them as a sign of weakness. Maybe you're in this group. And of course, there are many who don't have access to important medications, and that's an issue we need to continue working on. Given all this, I've invited Tristan Garindo to the Chill Factory to talk about these drugs, concerns about them, and to help you evaluate whether they'd be a good option for you and those you care for, including your kids. Dr. Garindo is a practicing board-certified child and adolescent psychiatrist in Washington, D.C., and completed his clinical training at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. He's a national expert in behavioral health care transformation, particularly as related to value-based care and interprofessional care of those with mental illness. During the interview, we mostly talk about SSRIs, or the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors class of medications, which are generally used long-term to treat anxiety disorders and depression. Benzodiazepines such as Xanax and Clonopin are another class of drugs which are often prescribed for shorter-term relief of anxiety symptoms. Check the show notes for a link to more information about those drugs, including their benefits and concerns associated with their longer-term use. And stay tuned after the interview because I'm going to tell you about four essential sleeping pills that do not need a prescription. I started by asking Tristan for a brief overview of SSRIs and how they work. Well, we have a lot of medications that are available to help patients with anxiety as well as depression, stress. Anxiety and depression within the psychiatry world, we really think about as being two sides of the same coin. So we actually use the same medications for the most part when we're talking about treating anxiety and depression. 
And I, I use those words really specifically and deliberately because not all worry is an anxiety disorder. Not all sadness is a major depression or a depressive disorder. There are really kind of clear guidelines as to when we're talking about someone having clinical symptoms that are strong enough that warrant medication treatment. And that's really something that you're going to work out with your healthcare professional as to whether or not you have symptoms at a level that really warrant a medication intervention. And these are medications that you've probably heard of. Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro, Celexa. These medications have been around for the better part of, gosh, 30 years at this point and have lots of safety data and lots of efficacy data that really show us that they help us address anxiety and depression. How they actually work is still a little bit of a black box. The brain is a really complicated organ. We know that they help adjust neurotransmitters in the brain a little bit, things like serotonin and norepinephrine levels in the brain. And what we think is they probably help regulate some of the circuits in our brain. That's the way in which various parts of the brain talk to each other and trying to create some more efficiency in those pathways. And these medications all through one form or another kind of help optimize that circuitry. But it's not 100% clear exactly how they work, but it is clear that they do work. And so uh, we have lots of great options for people who have kind of clinical levels of anxiety and stress and depression. Yeah, to that point about not all sadness is depression and not all stressors are an anxiety disorder. In general, are there guidelines around who would be candidates for these kinds of medications? Within the mental health world, we have a concept that we constantly refer to that centers around this idea of functional impairment. So what does that mean? So functional impairment means that the symptoms of whatever the disorder is are significant enough that they're getting in the way of you living the life you want to live. So if you have a little bit of worry around going to school or going to work, but you're still going to work and you're still getting your work done on time and the quality of your work is still quite high or it's what you would want it to be, then that's not really a disorder. If you have sadness because your pet passed away recently, but you're not so tearful that you're not going to the grocery store and you're not feeding yourself and you're not going to work, then that's doesn't quite cross the line to that sadness translating into functional impairment. So we're constantly looking in the mental health world at kind of the output. And that is to say, like, how do these symptoms impact your life? How are they keeping you from living the life you want to live? And if they're not, it's probably not a true disorder in the way in which we would define it. The inverse is also true. We think about depression as having a dozen or so symptoms that are kind of the hallmarks of depression. And it doesn't mean you have to have all 12 symptoms in order to have depression. You could have some of them. And if it's keeping you from getting out of bed, if it's keeping you from engaging with your spouse or your friends, then that raises a suspicion that there's something there that we need to treat. So that idea of functional impairment, living the life you want to be living, 
that's really central to how we define the difference between a disorder and symptoms of a disorder. Can we talk about a feeling that some have that going the route of getting a prescription and taking an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety drug is somehow a failure or a sign that you're just not strong enough or on the flip side that you're weak and can't deal with your problems. And I ask that question because I think this does stop people from even going down the road of considering these drugs or seeing a physician to uh, be prescribed them. And of course, these drugs can be incredibly helpful to people. So anything that we can do to you know, facilitate people feeling better, getting healthier, I, I do love to talk about. Yeah, so it's it's one of the most common concerns that my patients bring up. I mean, just candidly, and I'm a child psychiatrist. I see, you know, kids from grade school and all the way up in, in into adulthood. And regardless of age, it it's something that people worry about. There is this sense that um, you know, mental health problems, because it's so core to like this idea of what we think about as agency, like this idea of who we are as a person, and this idea that somehow my thinking has been changed, we often feel like we should be able to fix that. We should be able to control our own thinking and our own feelings. And to some extent, that is true, right? So the cognitive behavioral therapy, which is one of the most common, most evidence-based treatments for both anxiety and depression is really about helping you do some brain training around um, thinking about uh, situations, feelings, emotions in a different way. And so that's a non-medication option that we often use that really aligns with people's idea that like I should have more control over my own thoughts than this disorder might have over me. And at the same time, we know that there is no health without behavioral health, that medical health and behavioral health have a huge overlap. Patients are oftentimes surprised when you talk to them about the connection between the mind and the body. And in the same way that somebody with diabetes who needs insulin because their pancreas is not producing enough of it, we often find that people with depression or with anxiety need help regulating their serotonin levels. We also know that physical illnesses like hypothyroidism, even some vitamin deficiencies can cause depression. We know that inflammation contributes to mental health symptoms. So there is this really strong mind-body connection. We don't have to look very far back in history just to last year, and you think about individuals with long-haul COVID symptom, huge impacts related to depression, anxiety, attention, concentration, all caused by a physical illness, the COVID-19 virus. And so oftentimes it's really helpful for patients to think about, yes, there are things I can do to help control my thoughts or think about situations in a different way, and it's also helpful for me to think about my mental illness as part of being 
overall illness. And the same things that I would do to address diabetes or hypothyroidism or upset stomach, sleep apnea, all those really common things that we treat all the time with medications or medical interventions, we should apply that same thought process to how we're thinking about behavioral health and potential treatments for behavioral health. Good conversations with your healthcare um, provider around whether or not medications are right for you have to be a core component of, of any treatment plan. Should always happen before you decide to go on a medication so that you can figure out, is this the right choice for me? Or are there other things that I wanna do, like therapy, uh, as part of my treatment plan first? Really clear and, and really important. And a, a follow-up to that, and I think it also figures into people's um, hesitation or resistance to taking medication. When you go on medication, if that's a decision that you and your healthcare provider come to together, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean you are going to be on this medication for the rest of your life or even for a really long time, right? Absolutely correct. So individuals with what we would consider kind of run-of-the-mill anxiety and depression oftentimes are on medication for about a year. We, we often think about once you enter remission, that is that functional impairment piece, you're living the life that you want to live has kind of returned and you're in, a, in good stead doesn't mean all the symptoms are necessarily gone, but you're at least functioning in the way that you're imagining for yourself. We often think about when you reach that point, you probably are going to stay on the medication for about a year, six months to a year, sometimes a little less, sometimes more, but 12 months is usually what I tell my patients. And then at that point, you have a conversation with your healthcare provider around what are the pros and cons of continuing this medicine? Is now the right time to come off this medicine? I see a lot of teenagers and I often say, you know, when you're studying for your AP exams, that is not the time to decide whether or not we want to come off of your medications. But summer break is absolutely a time for us to, to think about tapering off and seeing how you do without it. Individuals who are on medications longer than that are typically individuals who have had treatment and responded and then gone off a of treatment and had symptoms recur. So once you've had a few bouts of depression or a few bouts of anxiety, that's when we often talk with patients around there might be uh, a role for longer term or lifelong medication usage. But it's an ongoing discussion uh, constantly, and it should be an ongoing discussion uh, between the patient and, the, and their healthcare provider at every visit as to whether or not this is the right medication, is this the right dose, and is this the right duration of time for me to be on it. And as you're saying at the end there, some medications may not work the way you want them to. And there are other options that your healthcare provider and you may decide to switch to and, and dosages can be adjusted. So that can figure into the mix and maybe uh, delay the results that you'd like a little bit and also extend the amount of time you're on. But it's not just a, if this doesn't work, then that's it deal. Oh, absolutely. And 
any good treatment, the, the cornerstone of that is the communication between the patient and the prescriber. So we know that for the antidepressants and the that we're using for both treating anxiety and depression, those SSRI medications that I mentioned earlier, we know that about 60% of patients will respond to the first medication they try. That means 40% of patients will not respond to that first medication that they try. So if you're engaged in a conversation with your healthcare provider around what's working and what's not working, it's pretty easy to just switch to another medication that may be a better fit for you. We don't have a crystal ball that we can look into and say, hey, Jordan, here are the symptoms you have. I think this is the right medication for you. We have some hints. We have some data that we can glean that can help us pick a medication who we think might be a good choice for you. But we can't, we don't have a blood test, a diagnostic test or anything like that that tells us for these symptoms, this medication at the level of an individual. And so it's very common that individuals will need to switch medications because the first medication they tried simply didn't work. The good news is that after two medications, the odds are that somebody has found a medication that works go way up. And Tristan, what about side effects for these medications? I know there are potential side effects. Can you talk about a few of them? The side effects of these medications are actually, for the most part, most people, pretty minimal. They're easy to take. You can take them with food, without food. You can take them in the morning. You can take them at night. All, all They're pretty flexible medications. The most common side effects are some GI distress when you start them early on, but you usually just kind of take care of that with starting at a low dose and working your way up. So most people do great on it. The thing that people complain about is that they don't always work the first time. And so that's where if you have a, a good relationship with your prescriber and you're checking in after that first medication starts, if it's not working, that's your chance to say, hey, can we talk about an alternative that might be a better fit for me? Because I don't think this medication is working all that well. Does what we've been talking about differ when we're talking about kids? In some ways, kids with mental health issues have a better long-term trajectory if they get treatment than if you wait until they're an adult and they get treated. You know, one in five Americans will have a behavioral health condition at some point in their life. Think about that, one in five. And a huge number of those individuals, huge number of those individuals, had symptoms that began before age 18. And that's really one of the big public health crises in this country, is thinking about how do we identify kids with behavioral problems, with mental health problems, with substance use problems, early and intervene early so that they're not waiting, suffering for 5, 10, 15, 20 years before the problem is boiled over to a point where it's finally identified and treated. We want to give people as much quality of life and try to treat them and identify them as early as possible uh, because that's just going to contribute to the overall health of our society in general. And Tristan, recognizing and respecting that someone may not want to 
go on medication to help them reduce their stress and anxiety or treat some something else because they still are unsure, uh, they have mistrust of pharmaceutical companies, um, they don't want to put substances like this in their body. What might you suggest they think about in terms of uh, other ways that they might address these uh, feelings that they're having that are very real? The good news is that we live in the most amazing time for the brain. So we know more about the brain now than we ever have before. And we're continuing to learn every day, identifying new discoveries, new ways to think about how we how the brain works and how we can best provide people with treatment. And some of that looks like it's pharmaceutical, but a lot of it is not, right? So there's been a great deal of evidence that's been amassed in the last few decades around the value of exercise. There's been evidence around light therapy for individuals, particularly with seasonal affective disorder, people who get a lot of symptoms in the, in the dark, darker months of the year. There are a whole bunch of uh, studies that have identified nutrient-based interventions, certain vitamins and supplements that can be helpful. Um, and then with even within that pharmaceutical front that you mentioned, there are a lot of really interesting discoveries being made. So you may have heard or seen in the news uh, discoveries around psychedelics and how they're helping individuals with uh, particularly trauma-related disorders. Um, there are increasingly new ways that we're thinking about using ketamine and ketamine-related products for helping to treat depression. Uh, there are new novel agents that are becoming available to help treat anxiety disorders. So the way treatment looks today may look very different 10 years from now. Certainly looks different than it did 10 years ago. I think we're going to help lots and lots of people. And we're going to help give people just better quality of life. And that, that's really the, the name of the game. Well, Tristan, this has been really helpful and educational and, and as I said before, clarifying. So thanks so much for your time and expertise. I appreciate it. Tristan Garindo is a psychiatrist in Washington, D.C., and you can learn more about him and his work in the show notes. And now to those sleeping pills I mentioned during the intro, because the quality and quantity of your sleep is central to your ability to manage and reduce your stress and anxiety levels. Put plainly, decent sleep helps you better deal with the parade of stressors and challenges that come your way during a given day or week. Being well-rested helps us think more clearly, solve problems, communicate better, and feel less overwhelmed, just to name a few benefits of these well-researched sleeping pills. First, go to bed and wake up at the same times each day, including on the weekends. And if you need to adjust this time during the winter when many of us get less sunlight, do so. Maybe go to sleep a little later and wake up a little later with the sun. Second, keep your sleep environment cool, dark, and quiet. Cool means 65 to 73 degrees Fahrenheit if you can do it. If not, maybe use a fan to keep you cool. 
If external light bothers you, use blinds, shades, or some other kind of covering to screen out light from the outside. And use a white noise machine or a fan to block out outside noises such as horns and sirens and voices or inside noises such as a bedmate snoring. Number three, banish blue light. Block out all of those LED lights from electronic devices in your sleeping space. Put tape or some kind of covering over them because the light they emit mimics sunlight and that is not good for sleep. Finally, don't force yourself to sleep. If you wake up at 3 or 4 in the morning, don't lay there and will yourself to go back to sleep. Do something like read a book from a printed book, listen to music, or something else that helps lull you back to sleep. So try these sleeping pills tonight and every night, and we'll also put them in the show notes. It's quitting time for this episode of The Chill Factory. I'm Jordan Friedman. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to follow The Chill Factory wherever you get your podcasts so that you'll know when new episodes are available. And there's always more at thechillfactory.net. And as actress and president of the Screen Actors Guild, Fran Drescher said, once you wake up and smell the coffee, it's hard to go back to sleep.